Mike, I appreciate you praying. For me, um, you ever have a day where you just get up and there are distractions and, and things just seem all over the place? Yeah, every day, yeah, sometimes it feels that way. Uh, man, having one of those days today. And so I am just directed and encouraged to go before the Lord in prayer. Already um, been blessed to be able to pray with some others in our church um, this morning. But I'd love to pray again before we uh, open up God's word together today. Uh, So let's go before God in prayer this morning before we consider his word. Father, we recognize that you hear our prayers and that you love your children and that you know our lives and you care for our families and you care um, for all the details going on in our lives. It's because you're God that we have experienced that and we know that and we trust that. And that brings us all a lot of encouragement. And we know, Lord, even as we gather again to hear from you in your word, that you have something for us today, something powerful, something life-changing, truths that transform. And so we all want to be attentive in hearts and minds that we would see what glorious realities you have for us today from Galatians. Would you give me the ability to communicate your word in a way that helps everybody who's here and listening? Would you help me to be faithful to the meaning and and to the implications of what you're revealing, that we'd see it, that we'd glory in you, that we'd be thankful, that you would lift our hearts today. We need you. We need your word. So we ask for your work. We ask for your help. Guide us and direct us. Bless us today. We need it. Show us your glory from your word. We need it. We say this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for those of you who know me, you know that I'm not the best handyman. It's not a descriptive word when you think of Daniel. I recognize that. (laughs) Let's just say no one's calling me to fix a leaky pipe or a car or really anything. But I do know something about tools. Maybe not how to use them so well, but I kind of know what they're for. You want to make sure that you use the right tool for the job. Because if you use the wrong tool, you could make matters a whole lot worse. As Charles Spurgeon humorously put it, a handsaw is a good thing, but not to shave with. A handsaw is good for cutting wood, but not facial hair. And if you put your handsaw to the sort of use, you'll wind up losing a lot more than hair in that situation. Now, I have a lot of experience making matters worse with these kinds of things. Not quite to the level of shaving with a saw. (laughs) But still... This is why I am especially thankful for the many people in my life who know what tools to use 
and also how to use them. You see, the problem with the false teachers in Galatia was that they were teaching and leading other believers to follow in their footsteps in relying on the wrong tools for the job. They were relying on the law tool to provide grace, forgiveness, and blessing. But as we're going to see this morning, Paul is going to object and tell us that the law was never meant to provide any of those things. This leads us now to the text and to a question about this law tool that we're going to see from our passage in number one. Why then the law tool, why then the law after promise? Look with me in your Bibles to Galatians 3 and verses 19 through 20. Paul says just that, doesn't he? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. So after Paul has been throwing all this shade on the law... For those of you who aren't familiar with throwing shade actually means, it's a, it's a term, kind of like a slang term, but that actually found its way into the Webster's Dictionary in 2017, as sometimes these things do. It's a slang word, and this is the definition. Shade, shade is a subtle, sneering expression of contempt for or disgust with someone, sometimes visceral and sometimes not. Now, Paul didn't actually have contempt or hatred of the law. What he was really upset about, though, was the wrong use of the law tool. He was alert and alarmed by the gospel perversion and drift that the Judaizers were causing and the Galatian Christians were listening to and their whole twisting of the law to be something that it was never meant to be. They were using the law tool or trying to use it to justify them, to make people right before God. But as we've seen so far in our series, it's not law-centered justification, not at all. Rather, it's gospel-centered justification. That is what we're seeing in Galatians. So Paul here threw shade on their use of the law, not the law itself, and said, no, it cannot save. No, it doesn't make us righteous or justified. And relying on the law to do works of the law for that kind of thing, it'll only curse us as we have seen. And as we even saw last week, it will not even give us the inheritance of the promise Either. It was never meant to do that. So the obvious glaring question that we come to, the elephant in the room that everybody's thinking based on Paul's teaching, is that why in the world was the law even given to begin with? 
What is it even for after the promise was given to Abraham? Paul's answer here for us is that first and foremost, the Mosaic law was given 430 years after the Abrahamic promise, not to save or justify or forgive, but actually quite the opposite of that. The tool or the purpose of the law was to show us all of our sin and all of our guilt. I want you to see clearly here from this passage that the Mosaic law tool was never intended to save, like the false teachers were saying. And it was also not intended to last forever. It was given chronologically after the promise, which we saw last week, And then we just saw just right now, what does it say? It was given only for a limited period of time. What did the text say? It says it was given until something. Until what? Let's see it again from our text in verse 19. It says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until, see that? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise was made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Did you see that? The tool of the law had a limited use in that toolbox. It was to serve a specific function for a limited time, what? Until who came? Until the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, came. We saw last week that the promised offspring was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He came. He fulfilled that promise. That time is over. The seed arrived. It's good news of the gospel. Jesus came. So if the teachers came in today to our church to implement Mosaic law here, and that we need to keep religious circumcision and food laws and do animal sacrifices, what would you say to them based on this passage? What should the Galatian Christians back then have said to the Judaizers based on the truth? You'd say, wrong tool. You'd say, wrong time. You're just a few thousand years late if they came today, right? Jesus came. You're late to the party. The tool served a purpose back then. It showed us how messed up we were from the time that it was given to the time of Jesus Christ. That would be our answer. And that would be our answer to anyone who would try to lead us away from the good news of the gospel and to any form of law or works-based tools that supposedly led to forgiveness and grace and blessing and justification. We'd say, wrong tool. Oops, wrong again. Try again. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go to jail. No, no, no. You got it all wrong. Do you see how good of news that is for us? It means here that we don't have to look to the law tool to get us right before God. We don't have to do anything to receive the promise, except what? Simply trust the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, as we saw last week. Trust Jesus. That's what we're called to do. 
and to rejoice and to receive the promise through him, through him, not through the law. But what about these angels and intermediary that we saw here? I asked for prayer last Sunday night to understand this very concept and verse and praise God to receive prayer for the preaching of the word. I always need it. So if anybody ever thinks about it, I love that you might be praying for this very important ministry of the word. Lots of ink, let me tell you, has been spilled over the whole thing here. And though the account of the giving of the Mosaic law and Mount Sinai and these things, it doesn't mention angels in Exodus in those accounts. We actually see in other places, even in the New Testament, that angels were there and involved even in the giving of the law. Did you know that? You might miss it. You might not have caught that. So I want to kind of point out some of these to us. I think it's important to see what the passage is saying and what the Bible teaches. Remember Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts? Do you remember um, before he was pummeled by stones, he was giving uh, a defense of the gospel and communicating biblical truth? And he was putting those religious leaders on blast, so to speak. In Acts 7, in 52, it says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Can Can you hear the sarcasm in that to the false teacher? Who exactly did the... Your fathers and these other religions, which ones did they not persecute? Implication is everybody was persecuted. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Wow, those are some fighting words, right, by Stephen in this very serious time. Verse 53 says this, you who received the law as delivered by what? Angels. And did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. He wasn't popular that day. But you see there, biblical teaching about the law and angels and and how they were involved. Hebrews 2 2 says this, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. You see there's multiple passages in the New Testament. There's even some in the Old Testament that that point to this reality that angels were present there in the giving of the law. And Derek Thomas really helpfully pointed out, and, and when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, all the big times and significant moments in biblical history, he pointed out, Notice that angels were present in those moments. And some of those verses we just read and Galatians and these other passages of the New Testament, and then what he's going to say here I think will help us a little bit sorting this all out. And Thomas says this, angels are present at all the significant events of redemptive history. He mentions creation. So Genesis is silent about angels, but in Job 38.7, it mentions their exclamation of great joy at creation. We see that in the scriptures in Job. And then he mentions the story of the patriarchs, and you see multiple significant moments, and he lists verses there. And then the prophets, he lists different verses in the angels' involvement. Think about the birth 
of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the life and death of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, angels there and involved, the resurrection even, and then the second coming of Jesus. So hopefully that's all enough to point to us and help us understand a little bit about how angels were connected to the law. But now what about this intermediary that Paul mentions here in verse 19 and 20? If you thought the angels were a little foreign or hard to figure out there, this is even more challenging and greatly debated. And though I'm not going to pretend to have it all figured out here this morning, as the many commentators point out, there are over 300 different interpretations that have been given in church history. They'll point to that. I don't see a list of all of them, but I'll take their word for it. Challenging passage. And one really famous, very competent preacher who I greatly respect and admire said this years ago when he was preaching in Galatians, John Piper honestly communicated this about this verse. He says, I am not going to deal with this because I don't know what it means. I cannot figure out how the two halves of verse 20 relate to each other. I would be happy for anyone to give me insight here. So I humbly come here to to try to show us what I believe that the scriptures are revealing, uh, but I do so with some trembling and, and some uncertainty. But I think what's being brought out here is that Paul brings up an intermediary which replies more than one, and then this whole emphasis that God is one is basically him contrasting the promise with the law, contrasting Abraham with Moses. And as we've seen already that the Mosaic law was never meant to replace the promise made with Abraham. It wasn't a replacement. It was for something else that we're seeing here in this sermon. But what's being emphasized here and all throughout Scripture is that it was inferior to the promise. Do you remember we saw last week that God passed through the bloody carcasses of the animals in Genesis 15 as he made a promise and he set the stipulations of the covenant all by himself and he didn't even involve anybody else in that miraculous gospel promise with Abraham. You remember that that amazing work that God himself did? Abraham was sleeping for crying out loud. He, He didn't have anything to do with that whole promise thing there in Genesis 15. God passed through the bloody animals to make a covenant and make it official all by himself. And then, later in church history, or biblical history, we see this temporary Mosaic law that was, in, that was put in place through angels and included Moses, the intermediary, who passed on the stipulations of that covenant law to the people. You see here, I think the point is that the covenant with Abraham was superior and did not require an intermediary Moses or angels or anything else like that. The one God did it all in that promise. And that right there is a summary of where I've come and all of my study. And I will say this in humility, I didn't get it from myself. I received help by many others who have alluded to or pointed to this kind of an interpretation, including John MacArthur, Tom Schreiner, F.F. Bruce, 
Derek Thomas, John Stott, Jay Adams, Jarvis Williams, Philip Ryken, Terry Johnson, Douglas Moo, Curtis Vaughn, and Grant Richardson. And that is only to name a few of them. And I say that so I could make myself feel a little bit better about the conclusions of this rather puzzling section of Scripture, but also to point out humbly where I've received help wading through. And, and also, I'd like to thank uh, those who prayed for me on Sunday evening as I dove into this. Stott, John Stott humbly and succinctly sums up this uncertainty of this fact as well, and he says this, the intermediary is doubtless Moses. So when God gave the law, he spoke through angels and through Moses, but when God spoke the gospel to Abraham, he did it direct. And that is, this is what he says, and that is probably the meaning of the phrase God is one in verse 20. So probably humility, but I think we're seeing, continually seeing this contrast between the covenants. So to sum this point up, Why then the law tool, or why then the law after the promise was given? The answer here in this first part of the passage, and this is going to pay off later on in the sermon, so I want us to see it. The answer is that it's because the one God who made the certain promise of the singular offspring, Jesus Christ, used Moses, the intermediary, to implement a temporary law, not to save or justify like the false teachers were saying and the Judaizers were saying, but to show us how guilty and sinful we really were and are. The law tool here, of course, was worse than the promise or not as glorious as the promise made and kept by the one God, but it doesn't mean or you may get the wrong idea that somehow that the law was evil, right? or that the law was kind of against the promises and something of that nature. And I wouldn't want you to get that wrong idea either, and neither would the Apostle Paul. And this leads us to our second point, and number two, the law pointed to the promise. Look with me now in Galatians 3 and verses 21 through 22 for this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see, church, the law was never meant to replace or even to contradict the promise. But to make desperately clear to every one of us How much we need, what? The promise. The law, as Paul adamantly exclaims here, was not contrary or against the promises of God. Not at all. Last week we saw that relying on law keeping actually forfeits the promise. Remember, forfeit the game. Forfeits that promise. But notice when I mentioned that, I did not say that the law was contrary or that the law forfeited the promise in and of itself, in its very nature. No, it's the practice, it's the wrong use of the tool, it's the wrong use of the law, relying on law-keeping. That was the issue that Paul was rebuking here. That was the problem. The law served a very good purpose. Not to save us, right? Not to justify us, 
but to point out our need for the promised seed or offspring who would come and save the day. How many of you know that you have a need of Jesus Christ to save the day for your life? That was the purpose of the law to point us to the need for Jesus to save the day. The, the purpose of the law was to point to prepare the way of the promise by exposing our many sins. Do you realize your sins and the weight of your guilt and, and, and wickedness and things of that nature? If you do, then that is the law serving its purpose to point out how bad you really are. Think about the sacrificial system, for instance, in the Old Testament. Over and over again, year after year, animals were sacrificed because of Israel's many, many sins as outlined in the Mosaic Law. What does Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 1 to 4 say? Let's see it for ourselves. For since the law has but a shadow, talk about throwing shade, right? So, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What's that saying? It's impossible for the law to actually save. The law tool doesn't fit the saving need that we all have. You have a saving need. Whether you know it or not, believer or unbeliever, you have a saving need. We're all under curse. We have a saving need. The law is not going to fit and fix that need. And you see, the law could never save. And it was never meant to give life either. It could never provide the righteousness that you and I so desperately need. But what could it do? It could only imprison us all under sin so that the promise could later be received by faith once Jesus came. That's exactly what the passage is saying. Let's see it again. Galatians 3 and verse 22 says this. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see that? The purpose of the law tool was to point to the promise. It could never provide the forgiveness because by very nature, its utility was to declare our condemnation. That's all the law can do for us. That's all it was meant to do for us, to show us we're guilty and in big trouble and make us honest with the fact that we need a new tool to get us out of trouble. You see that? To make us long for the tool of grace through faith in the promised Savior, Jesus Christ, to lead us to faith in Christ and not in our own works since works won't do. That's Paul's message over and over. That's the problem of Galatians. For the law does not give life, but it brings 
death. Remember Paul said in Romans 7, when the commandment came, I died. Law brings death. And historically, when we think of the Bible and the big picture of the Bible, what do we see? Israel is all about sin, 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 idolatry, image worship, failure, judgment, sin, sin, more idolatry, more failure. Isn't that what we see that Israel did? That's what the law was pointing out. And that's what we see in Scripture. There's no life in the law. No life transformation in the law. Just bondage and sin. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. That's what the law's purpose was for. Then, praise God, thankfully later, freedom from the bondage and salvation from sin came with the receiving of the promised Savior, the seed, Jesus Christ. Church, have you received this promised Savior through actually trusting and believing in Jesus and everything he's done for you, for your sin, for your salvation? Are you secure through faith in Christ? Here's a little test for all of us today as it relates to this. If your life is characterized by legalistic bondage to rules, and if you are uptight and joyless and hung up on me, 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 do, 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 don't do, don't do, don't do, if you're proud kind of in a pharisaical way, seeking to show everyone and even to show God himself, Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector, he prays, God, thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. If that's something that describes you, showing God himself, even how great you are, how good you are, you want everybody else to know it, how many rules you're able to keep, you make it real clear that everybody else sees that. You know what that means? That means that you just don't get it, that you haven't seen and then you haven't savored the gospel of Jesus Christ yet. That you are not relying on promise, but you are boasting rather in the law. No matter how superior you might feel or how nice it is to be able to keep a lot of rules to make yourself feel better, I warn you, if this is you, it won't work. That's the point of Galatians. Only faith in the promise will work. For only the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, actually kept the law perfectly, 100%, and died to save you and I from the curse of the law. And any form of religion that trusts anything but Jesus Christ is cursed. Only Jesus Faith in Jesus. Not Jesus with anything else added. Jesus paid it all. All to Emma Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He did it all. As many have said, it's Jesus plus nothing else. Equals everything in our salvation and our forgiveness and all that kind of thing. When you start trying to add to the gospel, we mess it all up. 
Now, you might be thinking here, Daniel, are you saying that there's nothing that I have to do in this Christianity thing? Certainly, you say, there is other things that are needed for me, good things for me to be doing. Not when it comes to our receiving of the promise. Not when it comes to this doctrine and topic of justification, being made right with God. Nothing else but faith alone is needed. In fact, anything else actually messes it all up and causes you to forfeit this very good promise of God, this very good news. Now, we will go on in this series, and as we see in Galatians and the rest of the Bible, to discuss morality and the role that good deeds play in the Christian life and our sanctification. We've already seen it a little bit so far. But for this topic here, with how we're made right with God, with justification, nothing but faith in the promised Jesus Christ, that promised seed, nothing else will do. I want to point you to that, church. Well, maybe you don't believe me. Maybe that all just sounds too good to be true. You think... I don't know if what Daniel's saying is right. It seems like maybe there's something that I should do. It seems like the law there should play that role in my life. Let me really quickly, in our final point, point to you the fact, even more clearer here in this passage, that we are no longer under the law as Christians. And that faith in Christ really is that tool. Faith in Jesus and the promise really is that tool that we all desperately need. Let's see it in our last point and number three. The law was guardian until the promise was kept. Let's see it in Galatians 3, verses 23 through 25. Now before faith came, we were all held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Do you see that right there in your Bibles? We are no longer under the guardianship of the law now that faith in Jesus Christ has come, period. We are no longer imprisoned by the law as Christians, period. You and I may look into the tool chest and pull out the good old-fashioned tool belt and, and, and grab a lot of different tools that are important for the Christian life. Here's one thing that you won't find in that tool belt. We will not ever see the use of the Mosaic law to somehow try to make ourselves righteous before God like the Pharisees and the Judaizers were doing and failing at and Paul was correcting. You'll never find that use of the law in your tool belt. We, you see, as Christians, must put the law in its rightful place. We see it, the law, 
as a limited function in the era of Moses all the way until the birth of the Messiah about 2,000 years ago that we celebrate so joyfully at Christmas, right? When the seed came, when he was born. Jesus is that promised seed. He has come, amen? Jesus has come. That's where we're at in biblical history. It's faith in this actual Savior that we have. Faith in the person and work of Jesus that we have as Christians. And we know even that, of course, there was faith before Jesus came as Abraham was justified by faith too, by trusting the promise. But you see, the difference was is that Abraham and other Old Testament saints were looking forward to the promised seed, the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. And we are justified by looking back to the actual Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again for our salvation. Do you see how privileged we are in in biblical history to be this side of the cross and to see the promise kept in Jesus Christ? From the time of Moses and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai until the time and coming of Jesus, Israel was held captive as prisoners under the law. And they were under a guardian. Now, we're going to see much more in, in two weeks about this guardian illustration that Paul brings up here. So we don't have to spend a lot of time on it here in this sermon. But the guardian, let me just put this up there, put up front for us, was a kind of strict, almost like a babysitter or a strict nanny who would enforce the rules of the home to the child during his adolescent years. This is the illustration that Paul is using. We'll look at that a little bit more into the future. But that's the basics. Think of the strictest person that you know. (laughs) Maybe it was your parents when you were growing up. Maybe they were nitpicky, on you all the time, telling you when you messed up and broke the rules. That's the kind of thing that guardians were in biblical times. We're going to see this later, but just think of that strict person, the strictest person you know, overbearing morality cop, so to speak, in your past, as you remember from childhood, rule maker and rule enforcer. You got that in your mind? Hopefully you do. If you do, I want to make the connection that that was the function of the law from Moses until Christ. That's what Paul is getting at here. (laughs) Do you want to know the good news, Christians, though? This is great news. Just not just good news. That function of the law, that function of that tool, was for that time before Christ. But now that the seed has come, Jesus has come, that's no longer what that tool is used for. We don't want to go back to that tool That's not what it's for. It's not for promise. It's not for gospel. It's not for justification. We see it again here in verse 25. Let's see it clearly. It says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Do you see that? This is such good news. The stringent law guardian could never give us life, church. Could never produce any life and change to begin with, those of you who relate to God in a kind of performance-based and law and 
strict God who's ready to get you and things of that nature. This is a word for you. I hope you can see it. The law just condemned. If that's how you relate to God and you feel crummy all the time, maybe it's because you're relating to God and the kind of law-based performance kind of thing. The law was only meant to point you to the promise. The law was all downer. It was a tool for judgment, not a tool for saving us, but pointing to the Savior. Now, don't get me wrong. As we've seen before in this series, and we're going to continue to see into the future, there are commandments in Scripture, and we should seek to obey and observe them. Don't get me wrong here. I don't want you to get me wrong. And we do look to the law of Christ and seek to obey all that Jesus taught us as we see in the Great Commission. And this good news doctrine of gospel-centered justification that we're seeing, not by works but through faith, does not lead to a kind of reckless immorality and sin. It doesn't lead to that. Don't go there, not at all. That would be another error altogether. What we're seeing here is that the Mosaic law was never able to change us or give us life, or as Tom Schreiner put it, the law was like a cage. If it has bars, it can keep the lion from eating the lamb. But it can't prevent the lion from wanting to eat the lamb. That's helpful, right? The law doesn't give life and transform and give us power to live new ways. Only faith in Jesus can do that kind of thing. Schreiner goes on to say, such rules are not necessarily bad, but Paul reminds us that they do not touch the human heart. Human beings may only or may obey laws because they want to avoid getting in trouble, but the law itself grants no power to obey. Only the gospel transforms hearts. I want to point us to the gospel. That's where life change is. And more centrally to what we've been seeing so far in the series, only the good news gospel of the promised seed given for us serves the tool that we must receive in our toolboxes in order to be forgiven, declared right and righteous or justified before God, and to receive that promise. It's only faith in Jesus. Through grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. So let us all, church, trust. Not in the guardian, not in the law, not relying on some strict nanny or babysitter, some real strict, stringent thing. No, let us not trust that kind of thing and relate to God in that kind of way because that just reveals the bad news of our sin and it points out our clear need for something more than that. But let us all, church, trust in the one that the law was pointing to all along. And let us run to the one who the law urgently drives us to when we realize how sinful and wicked we really are, how lost and desperate and messed up we are as we continually to break God's holy law in a variety of ways. And the law points us like a guardian, slaps us on the wrist, shows us where we're wrong, but it does that to point us to work in, in, in connection with the promise to point us to Jesus, 
The law crushes us so that the gospel promise can redeem us and save us and we can see our need of it. So, so church, let us move from the guardian to Christ together today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the amount of wonderful truths that we've seen even in these few very few passages and verses today. Thank you for the glorious realities and that you show us so many ways why your gospel is so good. Help us to take these things to heart. Help us to rely upon your grace and your mercy and your love and your forgiveness and your freedom. Help us to run to the promise, to love the promise, to trust the promise. Help each and every one of us today to look to the Savior. We need him, Lord. We need his forgiveness. We glorify you because of all that you've done. We thank you for the deep things you revealed in your word today. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen.